Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome back to another edition of C is for Creepy. Thank you so much to everybody who's been listening with us the last three weeks. We're so glad to be back. Uh-huh. And we love seeing all of the support. So please make sure that you like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, leave us a five-star review. And if you want to get in touch with us. Well, you can either email us at c4creepy at gmail.com or you can go to our website, cisforcreepy.com and submit your story, query, um, whatever you kind of want to. Just reach out to us on our contact form. Yes, please, please, please send us your spooky stories, your true crime stories, unless you're the one committing the crime. I mean, even if you are the one committing the crime, just don't put your name. Yeah. But, like, we have to report it, so. But we would love it. Do so, so at your own risk. Please. <laughs> All right. So for the letter D, what are you covering today? Ooh, this is a dark one. For D, I am pairing decapitation. Ooh, okay. <laughs> so decapitation is also known as beheading, and that is the total separation of the head from the body. And I got that from Wikipedia. No Britannica? Not this time, no. I didn't like how they had it worded as much. Okay. So, if you cannot tell from this definition, this might be a slightly gory episode, so it's not quite for everybody. Do it that what you will. Yep. Okay. So, historically, decapitation was a very common method of execution, although different instruments used to facilitate the removal were used. According to Britannica... Uh, Beauty. Love it. Beheading was used in ancient Greece and Rome as a form of capital punishment and was regarded by these cultures as an honorable form of death. Okay. So, I did read somewhere that beheading wasn't 100% correct at all points, like, with the guillotine. Okay. So... I feel like it's not so honorable. If chances are, like, if you're guillotined and... Like I said, it depended on... So in the Greek and Roman culture, they felt like it was an honorable form of death. There's other cultures where different acts definitely vary. Mm -hmm. But Greece and Roman, it was considered honorable. Oh, that hurts my soul. Okay. I'd like to die in one piece. (laughs) I mean, preferably... But I also feel like as form as medieval executions, at least beheading was hopefully quick. As long as you had a sharp blade and a guy that knew how to aim your gold. That's a lot to ask. I I mean, it is. (laughs) But like as far as the ancient tortures and executions go. Yeah. I'd see why they'd consider it honorable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. So a common theme with decapitation is that using a sword to complete the task was more honorable than using an axe, as it was required to be in an upright position and therefore was considered the equivalent to being killed in battle. 
Okay, I could see that. Yeah. We also cannot talk about decapitation without mentioning the French guillotine, which was last used in 1977, the same year that Star Wars A New Hope was released in theaters. 1977? Yep. Oh. Yep. My mom was alive in 1977. Yep, so was my mom. It's very weird to think about. Like I said, Star Wars A New Hope was released that year. Jesus. Same year. So just like, it's really weird when you think about like things that are historical and like things that also were happening at the same time that doesn't seem that far away. And no. Yeah. Like, I'm curious why. Why it was banned? No, no, no. (laughs) Why it happened in 1977. I feel like we had moved past that as a community. Mm, I mean... Death penalty was still around in a lot of places. But I'm pretty sure the electric chair would have been out by that point. It would have been, but this is also France. Like, this is a tried and true method. I don't know specifically why, but I think afterwards, capital punishment there was banned. Don't quote me, but... Could you imagine, like, one of our parents just waking up on a Saturday morning being like, we're gonna go see the public hanging. That seems so far out of reach yes. in my brain. When I think of the guillotine, I think of like Renaissance. <laughs> oh no, not even that. I don't know. Let me see when it was actually like invented, because I don't think it was. It was definitely invented way after the Renaissance. Give me a second. My social studies has failed me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> dates, dates specifically. So yeah, it was the origins of the French guillotine date back to late 1789. So like it's really relatively not that far back. 1789? Yeah. We're talking about the ancient history of like France and Europe, which is thousands and thousands of years old. Yeah. (laughs) I guess tried and true for almost 200 years. Yeah, like... Why would you change it? I mean, it gets them dead. That's yeah. that's the goal of capital punishment. It's relatively quick. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the use of the guillotine was ended in 1981 in France when the country outlawed capital punishment. There we go. See? Okay. So an interesting fact about decapitation is that it is more often seen in areas of armed conflict and is rather rare in regular civilian settings. Mm-hmm. Okay. One source said that only that decapitation only accounts for 0.1% of forensic autopsies. That's reassuring. I I felt that way too. Honestly, <laughs> I felt a little better after reading that one. Like, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, armed conflict areas. Like, yeah, but like, I'm not going to be walking down the street and be part of the 10 percenter club. Uh. It's less than 1%. That, that makes me feel better. <laughs> Postmortem decapitation has often been observed for different reasons, mainly defensive or aggressive mutilations. In the cases of defensive decapitation, the perpetrator removes the head of their victim with the intent of making it more difficult to identify the victim 
or to help move the body. In cases of aggressive decapitation, it has been found that the perpetrator is aggressive towards that specific victim and is taking their rage out on them post-mortem, or that the act of decapitation accompanies lust murders or necrosadistic murders. Ew. Yes. So, different reasons. Um, another reason, of course, is trophy killers as well. Um, collecting the body part as a trophy. I just, I feel like a head is a really hard trophy to keep. I mean, it wouldn't preserve well. I can see that. Well, technically, like, you could put it in a bucket of salt and, like, mummify it. Or pickle it. Or pickle it. But it's it's harder to keep heads hidden than, let's say, like, locks of hair. Yes. I'm just saying. Like, remember the boob guy? Like, people collect weird things. Yeah. Just saying. Trophy. Okay. On to my case. <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet. No. <laughs> oh, can you tell that we haven't seen each other in a while? <laughs> yeah. You're getting all my comments. Okay. So, I'm going to be covering the serial killer Edmund Kemper. Ooh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that he decapitated his... That's not all he did. Okay. Okay. Let's get to it. Okay. So, on YouTube, there is a documentary called The Co-Ed Killer Edmund Kemper. This was a really well-done documentary, I've got to say. Um... I watched it, learned a lot of information. They've got a lot of interviews with people going on, like, that were around at the time, um, investigators, some of the tapes that Kemper did interviews with. So, like, really well, if you want to watch it, I think it's about two hours long, but if it's not two hours, I'd recommend it. Okay. Okay. So, fully named Edmund Emil Kemper III. He was born December 18th, 1948. Okay. And that was in Burbank, California. So Camper was the middle born, and he had two sisters, so one older, one younger, middle boy. The damn middle children. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Camper's mother, Clarnell, was known to be a domineering woman talking down about her husband's career as an electrician. Edmund Jr. had previously served in the army, but had later said that wartime was nothing compared to living with Clarnell. Okay. So, Kemper had been born weighing 13 pounds. Oh, poor woman. And he continued to be larger than the vast majority of his peer group as he was growing up. Standing almost a head taller than his peers at the age of four, Kemper displayed antisocial behavior at a young age as well. Uh This included bedwetting and the torture of insects and animals. One example of this is at the age of 10, Kemper buried a cat alive, dug it up to confirm its death, and then decapitated it and put his head on a spike. Red flag. I mean, it's definitely a... Not a green one. No. No. Um, I'm sorry. So we know that he did this. What did his parents know? Did everybody just say, oh, he's a curious young lad? Like, well, let's remember that I haven't really gotten to it yet, but this is 
also his accounts of everything that has happened one to his relationship with his parents were not great like his mother was very domineering very toxic like she was an awful woman to be around and while his father was definitely closer to his son he also was out of the house like a lot like he was at the bars after work because he did not want to be home okay so like but this is all his accounts this, right? these are his accounts yes and like some of it was from his sister in the documentary okay. his younger sister had a few like could corroborate some okay. of this weird ass shit that he did oh all right okay. i've heard that he's a bit of a whiner I wouldn't necessarily call him a whiner. He's interesting as far as serial killers go because he is clocked at having an IQ of 145. Okay. Which is honestly not very common for most killers. Um, That being said, like, he's really well-spoken. Like, he's Mm -hmm. able to articulate himself and his feelings very well. Mm Mm-hmm. And... Don't get me wrong, he does not talk well about his family. Like, well, his mom, really, in particular. He's the last one to get sympathy, but you can see it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, this is not the only cat to be dismembered by young Kemper, and he actually hid the remains of another cat in his closet. And the reason he killed that cat is because it was showing favoritism towards his sister. Don't leave dead bodies in your closet. They start to stink. Yes. <sighs> okay. You know, sometimes I hear these killer stories and I'm just like, why? <laughs> why? Why do you make these life choices? Well, I mean, you're 10. Like, I mean... Where else are you going to hide it? I mean, when I brought home my rotten fruit that I didn't eat at school that day, like, that's made the trip back and forth to school for two weeks, <laughs> I just threw it in the closet like, ah, nobody will find it. Oh, I totally threw it out at school. Oh, I wish I was that smart. I was not. <laughs> I was just like, nothing comes out of there. <laughs> oh. Dead cat in the closet. Okay. Okay. So other abnormal behavior involved how Kemper would play. So he would remove his sister's doll's heads and hands. One of his favorite games to play was electric chair or gas chamber, where he would get one of his sisters to flip an imaginary switch and Kemper would act out dying by the aforementioned method. Another concerning trait noticed was his connection of death and sexuality at a young age. An example of this is while he was being teased by his sister about having a crush on his teacher, Kemper responded that, quote, if he kissed her, he would have to kill her first, end quote. Oh, so we got some necrophilia. Oh. Oh, we do. (laughs) Oh, we do. (laughs) And it's, like, honestly pretty vile. (laughs) Okay. When Kemper's parents unsurprisingly separated while he was the age of nine, Kemper, who had been much closer to his father, was devastated. Clarnell moved her two daughters and son to Helena, Montana. Kemper's relationship with his mother was dysfunctional. She was domineering, abusive, neurotic force in her son's life. 
Fearing that Kemper would attempt to assault his sisters, Clarnell forced the boy to sleep in a locked, dark basement, which he hated. And I don't really know if there... Nobody ever really said if there was a risk of him. Like, if there was any... Like, he was definitely a weird kid. But I think it was more that his size and him being a male is what made... Everybody a little twitchy? Yeah. Okay. So... Yes, uh, forced to sleep in the cold, dark basement. At 14, Kemper ran away from his mother's house to live with his father and his new family. While living with them, Kemper developed feel- sexual feelings towards his father's new wife. Oh. Which, understandably, made her extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. At his new... At his new wife's insistence, Kemper was taken to live with his grandparents on a country house near North Fork. Okay. So on August 27th, 1964, when Kemper was 15 years old, he got into an argument with his grandmother at the kitchen table in a rage. Kemper left the table and returned to the kitchen with a rifle, where he shot his grandmother in the head. Oh, that's some pent-up rage. Ah, yeah, I would say so. So even though the shot killed her, Kemper reportedly shot her multiple times. When his grandfather returned to the house shortly after, Kemper met him outside where he shot the elderly man by his car. Not knowing what else to do with both of his grandparents dead, Kemper called his mom, who instructed him to call the police. When in police custody, Kemper said that he just wanted to know what it felt like to kill his grandmother. Oh, did he? While he hadn't planned to murder his grandfather, Kemper reasoned that his grandfather would not have wanted to know that his wife was dead, and that his grandfather would be angry at what Kemper had done. Hmm. The 15-year-old was sent to a maximum security state hospital. While at the state hospital, Kemper was a model inmate. He even befriended his psychologist and became his assistant. Kemper used his higher intelligence to to his advantage, gaining the trust of the doctor to the point where he was able to administer psychiatric tests to other patients. I don't like that. No. In the documentary, Kemper admitted with... The access to the results of the test from other patients, Kemper gained knowledge on how to manipulate the doctors. He also learned from sex offenders to never leave a witness, that it was better to kill after raping them. Kemper was released to his mother's care at 21 years old in 1969. This was against the advice of psychiatrists at the hospital. Once in his mother's care, Kemper went to community college with the hopes of becoming a police officer. He was not accepted into the police force due to his size, standing at 6 feet 9 inches tall. So Kemper maintained a relationship with other officers and would frequent the local police hangout spot, a bar called the jury room. His relationship with his mother did not improve and remained toxic. The two could be heard viciously arguing by their neighbors. Kemper gained employment with the State of California Division of Highways. He saved enough money to move out of his mother's house, but did not feel as though he was free from her, as his mother would call him often and give him surprise visits. Oh. 
there's like this thing where he was in a car accident and got a settlement. That's like the whole thing. But he was able to get money to buy a 1969 Ford Galaxy. And he also, while driving around California, noticed the number of hitchhikers. Mm-hmm. So Kemper got together plastic bags, knives, blankets, mm-hmm. and handcuffs, which he kept in his car and began to pick up hitchhikers, mostly women. Kemper estimated that he picked up and peacefully dropped off around 150 women before he started feeling the homicidal sexual urges, like you do. Yeah, just as one does. <laughs> it only took around 150. Fuck. You know, and he really held off there. Right? He really kept it together. <laughs> man. What, what a strong man. Yeah. Good for him. Gold star. Right? <laughs> Fuck. So to preface this next part, um, we're going to get into the murders now. Um, the other murders, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I did not know this before watching the documentary. But when like universities and college and other institutions started becoming co-ed, um, both so like as in both genders could attend. Mm-hmm. Um, only the women were actually called co-eds. I didn't realize that, but like it was this whole thing in the like in those days where you know you'd get a co-ed and that would be a description of a young kind of like hot woman Woman? yeah oh so like it's kind of weird like i didn't really piece that together i never knew why he was called the co-ed killer when Uh, he only killed women when he only killed young women that like mostly attended these universities with like a few exceptions but for the most part huh but okay yeah i didn't realize that before i didn't know that either okay so with that in mind between may 1972 and april 1973 kemper killed eight women thus gaining the nickname the co-ed killer kemper's mo was to pick up young women who were hitchhiking take them to an isolated area then kill them he did not have a specific way that he murdered um, he experimented with shooting, stabbing, smothering, and strangling his victims. Once the young woman was dead, Kemper would take their bodies back to where he was living at the time, where he would decapitate them, rape their heads, then further rape their now headless corpses, and then finally dismember them. And there's like a specific word that... I kept seeing, uh, I think I wrote it down here eventually. Da, da, da. Okay. Was it the actual, like, mouth or the neck hole? I always assumed it was the mouth hole. I am, I don't know. But, okay. like, from what I've seen, it was the mouth hole, not the neck hole. Okay. <laughs> Oh, God. That's so gross. Uh, what's that word? Da, da, da. Whatever. Um, I'll come up to it. Okay, so... Da, 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 dismember them. After being taken into custody, Kemper stated that he would often hunt for victims after having arguments with his mother, and many have since speculated that these victims were surrogates for his mother. <sighs> you know, did that many women have to die for your mommy issues no no okay Okay. no that's of course not like that's the thing that like pisses me off so much same with like ed gein with like oh my mom 
Yeah. My mom did this to me. No. Well, maybe she did fuck you up, but does not give you the right to then fuck everybody else's shit up. Yes. Not even the right. Like, I don't know. It's fucked. It is fucked. Okay. So now on to victims. Kemper's first victims were two 18-year-old students named Mary Ann Peets and Anita Mary Luchessa. These young women were hitchhiking from Fresno State University, hoping to catch a lift to Sanford University. Kemper instead drove the coeds to a secluded wooded area where he handcuffed Peace and locked Luchessa in the trunk. While in the woods, Kemper attempted to kill Peace by stabbing her and then switched to strangling her instead. Um, Luchessa died in the same way shortly after. Kemper took both of the bodies back to his apartment, where he took photographs of the dead women, raped their bodies, and then dismembered them. Okay, what did he do with the bodies after? Well, he dumped their remains, which he put into plastic bags, into a ravine near the Loma Priet Mountain. And most of the victims he disposes of in different locations, but all of them are dismembered. I'm curious how, because that's quite an escalation. Like, you shoot your grandma in the kitchen with probably a rifle, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you're killing hitchhikers in a bush, decapitating them? You know, I can understand why you would take that leap, but remember, like, he noticed hitchhikers and prepared a kill bag. He picked up 150 hitchhikers, preparing himself for this moment. Like, he knew what he wanted to do. Mm. He just needed the proverbial backbone in his mind to actually live out his fantasies. Okay. Yeah. Gross. Right? Okay. Um, Notably, Kemper engaged... Oh, there it is. With Ermatio. So that's forcible fellatio. Okay. Okay. Um, with both of the victims' heads before disposing of them. Kemper's next victim was 15-year-old Akuku, who on on September 14th, 1972, Ku was a dance student who decided to hitchhike after missing her bus. Kemper picked Ku up and once again drove the girl to a wooded area where he pulled a gun on her. Kemper has said in subsequent interviews that he had actually gotten locked out of the car, but Ku let him back in. Once inside the car, Kemper choked Ku to death. Hmm. She was 15. She was 15. Next is Cynthia Ann Shawl, who went by Cindy, and she was Kemper's next victim. Shawl was 18 years old, and she was hitchhiking from the Cabrillo campus on January 7th, 1973. Kemper once again drove out to a wooded area, but this time shot Cindy with a 22 caliber pistol. At this time, Kemper was living with his mother, so he drove Cindy's body back to his mother's house, where he hid her body in the closet in his room. This damn closet. The following day, now alone, Kemper removed the bullet from Shaw's body 
had intercourse and then decapitated and dismembered her body in his mother's bathtub. Oh. This time, Kemper kept Shaw's head for several days. Ew. Regularly using it to pleasure himself. Kemper also buried Shaw's head in his mother's garden, facing upwards towards her bedroom window. So she's always watching his mother. Well, the reason he did this is because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Which is, like, foul. Just everything about this is foul. Yeah. Um, the rest of Shaw's dismembered remains were thrown off of a cliff. Huh. The next victims were Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu. Thorpe was a 23-year-old student, and Liu was all was 20 years old, and they were both picked up by Kemper on the UCSC campus on February 5th, 1973. Due to the fear rising from multiple missing co-eds, students were encouraged to only accept rides from other people who attended universities, and were sporting, like, the school sticker on their vehicle. Mm-hmm. Well, Kemper's mother worked at UCSC, and therefore, Kemper was able to have a sticker. Like, and Thorpe was like, okay, like, is it safe? Lou's more hesitant. Thorpe went in and was like, oh, yeah, we're fine. Come on in. Yeah. And, like, I mean, he's got the sticker. He looks young enough that he could, like, I mean, he's a big guy, but... Like, sitting in a car, I mean, yeah. how do you tell, really? So Kemper followed his pattern, shooting Thorpe first and then Lou. Uh, before taking his bodies to his mother's house this time, Kemper decapitated them in his car before bringing the headless corpses inside. Which, like, my biggest thing is, where's the blood? You're telling me this guy who dismembers this many people... Where is the blood? Is he that good at cleaning? And if so, what are his secrets? <laughs> You're right. Like, how is there no way that some random person doesn't get into his backseat of his vehicle and see, like, blood stains everywhere? Well, I mean, it's, it's not like there was tint back then. Like, this is a clear glass, and mm-hmm. you're just... There's blood everywhere. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's a solid point. That yeah, that's was my biggest thing as I was writing my notes. Was like, what in the fuck? You're right. Like I mean, even them being dead first, so there would definitely be a little like a little less blood being killed, like decapitated post mortem. But still, that's way too much. Well, we are literal like water balloons. Get focused. <laughs> Over them, we bleed. Yeah, it'll just leak out. <laughs> yeah. So. Jeez. That's my only, like, that's. Not to mention the smell. The head in the being kept as a souvenir for several days is. Or even the body, because bodies start to smell after like 12 hours because decomp already sets in. Uh-huh. So, like. Yeah, especially, I mean, California is not a cold country. Like, it's not, like, it's going to preserve as well as Canada in minus 30. Yeah, you're right. Like, you and I could probably keep bodies in our sheds for a little while. Solid week or two. Six months? Um, (laughs) On ice. (laughs) No, it's not six months. It's more like four. Okay. 
Okay. We oh, got okay. first snowfall November 1st. This year. Other years we get it before like Halloween. Yeah, yeah. September. Okay. You know what? Cut in half and we'll go with five months. Okay. Um, um, so solid five months. We could get away with it, like holding a body there for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. But not in California. Not in Cali. No. no. Uh-uh. Okay. So on April 20th, 1973, Clarnell Strandberg who was previously Clarnell Kemper, arrived home that night from a party. Her son, Big Ed Kemper, entered her room while she was sleeping, and that's where he bludgeoned her with a claw hammer and then slit her throat with a penknife. Oh. Kemp- Attention. <laughs> Kemper then decapitated his mother. No. No. And he- oh, yes, he did. No. No. He raped her severed head. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have familicide. Mm-hmm. We have... Matricide specifically. Matricide. Mm-hmm. And then we also have necrophilia. Mm-hmm. We also have... Oh, what is it? Um, like incest? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. How many other boxes is this man going... Like two more. Okay. Just like for things that I've talked about at least in the past. Okay. Okay. I don't think I've talked about incest before though. No. No. But I'm just Skeeved? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So all of the rage he felt toward his mother was being released. And so the brutality Literally. (laughs) 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 Quirky. He fucking did it. <laughs> well, the brutality did not stop there. Why would it? Um, Kemper used her head as a dartboard. He screamed at it for over an hour. That's healthy. And he finally smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and put them down the garbage disposal. But, of course, it's a garbage disposal in the 70s, so it, like, didn't really work very well and just made a big mess. Okay. Kemper hid his mother's body in a closet. For fuck's sakes. (laughs) And uh, later called her friend Sally Hallett to come over to the house. Hallett was 59 years old and Clarnell's best friend. See, okay... How bad could Clarnell be if she had a best friend? Everybody has a best friend. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. When Hallett arrived at the house, Kemper strangled her and hid her body in a closet as well. He later claimed that this was an attempt to create a cover story that both women had gone away on vacation together. Okay. I mean, that seems, like, a little redundant. Like, you didn't have to kill Sally Hallett for your mom to go on vacation. Yeah, but would it be believable that his mom went on her own? Mm, Maybe she was on a singles cruise. Maybe. I mean, you never know. Anyways. uh, I feel like if you told me you were going on a cruise by yourself, I would have some issues with it. I mean, I've done solo camping before, so it's more believable. Like, Joey could probably tell you that I'm camping in the bush for a week, and that would be good enough. Yes, that would be believable. But if you're like, I'm going on a cruise by myself, I'd be like, nah, somebody murdered that bitch and she's in somebody's shed. Mm -hmm. 
It would have to be the proper lie. <laughs> it would have. They would have to know me. Yes. <laughs> no. No ideas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Kemper also left a note for a police for the police that said, "Quote approximately five fifteen a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this quote murderous butcher. It was quick asleep." The way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Kemper then drove nonstop over a thousand miles to Colorado with three firearms and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car. There we go. So he thought that there was going to be this big manhunt after him, that these people were going to like track him down. Um, he took caffeine pills so that he could drive nonstop the thousand miles, which is sixteen hundred kilometers. Okay, but he didn't hear anything on the radio about his mother and her friends' murders. So why would it? Well, they're on vacation. Like nobody should be going over there, anyways. No, like that was my thought too. Right, but like not to belittle his mom and her best friend's no. murder or anything, but like. Unfortunately, sons have a tendency to kill their mothers often. Like, even if they found both of them and could pin you to it, they would have no idea your backstory. No. Uh, That seems very, like, narcissistic. Yeah, I was going to say very uh, inflated ego. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, when he did not hear anything about the murders on the radio, um, this prompted Kemper to call the police station from the payphone and confess to the murders. So, he needed the validation. He sure did. Okay. Well, yes, I think part of it definitely is he wanted the infamy, he wanted the notoriety, but, like, he has later said that, like, now that he's killed his mother, there's, like, really no point, like, to killing anybody else. Like, it got him off. That that was his peak. That was the climax, (laughs) I guess you could say. (laughs) We're going to hell. I know. At least we're going together. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, kill his mom. Climax. (laughs) But, so, like, that was the source of his rage so he really didn't need like have that urge to kill anymore and continue being a serial killer Hmm. that is what he has later since said i wonder if it's because he's in prison that like he doesn't really have the option i don't think so because remember he turned himself in and like get this so he calls to turn himself in and the police officer he talks to doesn't believe him and like tells him to call back so he does after several hours and he requests a specific officer who he knew and he confessed to killing his mother and her friend and asked for that police officer to come and pick him up. Oh, okay. So, and he waited there several hours for like the drive from California to Colorado, right? I mean, I'm just saying, like, somebody who wanted to continue to kill and, like, they wouldn't have done no. that. No, they wouldn't have. 
I feel like this all could have been like resolved quite quickly if you had just killed your mother. I don't. Yeah, we didn't need the extra steps. No, <laughs> we took a very long detour. Yeah. Not that you know, killing your mother is an appropriate response to your anger, but I. How many other victims were there? Twelve. So there was eight, including his mother, plus two, his grandparents. So twelve. Eight plus two is ten. You said eight, eight, and then plus two, his mom and friend, and then no, plus, no, no, sorry, oh. eight, including his mom. Oh, okay, so ten. Yeah. Okay, so nine of those people. Well, his grandparents were an experimentation in his youth. Fuck. <laughs> Gold star. Okay. Okay. Kind of makes me angry. Uh, everything about him makes me angry. Everything about him. Um, okay, so once in police custody, Kemper also confessed to being the co-ed killer. Awesome sauce. So th- he, this is a direct quote from Wikipedia when asked in a later interview why he turned himself in. So I didn't remember I put this, so I'm really glad we get to find out together. <laughs> Kemper said, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Towards the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it off. So, like I said, he had served his purpose. Like, his main target is dead. Yeah, so. Here we are. Okay. So due to the detailed confession made by Kemper, his legal counsel counsel pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, which is another box. (laughs) So not one, not two, but three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. Mm -hmm. Not only sane, but also fully cognizant of each case and also found that the thought of notoriety brought Kemper pleasure. So, clearly he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. We've been through insanity defense how many times? Every time. There's, Every yeah, goddamn time. The one case I covered where it was legitimate. <sighs> okay. So, Kemper took the stand and argued that the many crimes and acts that he committed could only be done by someone who was insane. Throwing back to last season's I case, Insanity defense, because there was clear displays that Kemper knew that what he was doing was wrong, and Mm -hmm. he also intentionally covered up his crimes, it's proof that he was not, that he was in his right mind. Yeah, well, and he planned them. Mm -hmm. He had a murder bag. Mm -hmm. He had a bag of drugs in the back seat. Like, (sighs) So it only took the jury five hours to find him both sane and guilty of eight counts of first-degree murder. Kemper, who, while in custody, attempted suicide on two occasions, asked for the death penalty, requesting specifically death by torture. I didn't think you get to request such a thing. Well, I mean, you can say whatever words you want, but I don't think that those are going to come to fruition. No. (laughs) 
Okay. He was instead given seven to life for each count of for each count which were to be served concurrently. Seven years to life? Yes. And how many counts was he? Eight counts. So technically he could have only served sixty no fifty-four years. He had actually been up for parole, but he's been denied every time. Okay. And um a few times he actually like waived his right to the parole meetings. Okay. But yes. Okay. Is he still alive? He is still alive. That was my next point. <laughs> yep. He is still alive in prison to this day, serving his time at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. He is known as a model prisoner. Uh, Kemper has served the majority of his time in general population. He has recorded over 5,000 hours of audiobooks and has made ceramic cups. Kemper was interviewed about why he decapitated his victims, and here is his reason. Quote, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head, end quote. I regret all of my life decisions up until this point. <laughs> up until this point? This is the moment that gives you purpose? No, sorry. I just regret all of my life decisions. Okay. I could have went my entire life without ever knowing that. Well, I had to read it so you had to hear it. Um, he's actually given a number of interviews throughout the years to... Like criminal behaviorists and profilers, and um, a whole bunch of different magazines and stuff. Yep, about the mind of a serial killer. Kemper suffered a stroke in 2015, so he's no longer recording audible books. Oh. Audio books, I should say. Um, and he is next eligible for parole in 2024. Oh, wow. And that is the case of Edmund Kemper. And his decapitations. <sighs> so, you were saying he makes ceramic cups. Yes. For people to buy? I don't think so. Okay. I don't know, though. I cannot say that for, like, I don't know. Because I always find it so disturbing when people are, like, buying memorabilia Yes. From serial killers. I a thousand percent agree. Um, I know that criminals in the United States are not able to make a profit off of their crimes. So they're not, like, if they sell a book, like, if they try to sell a book um, about, like, the depictions of the murders and stuff, if they make any money, that money is to go to the victims. Good. Uh, yeah. Damn right they should. Yeah. So I don't know about like like John Wayne Gacy's paintings or his cups. I don't know if there's like anything like that there. Yeah, it it truly just makes my skin crawl. I think learning about them is super fascinating, but the moment you start to like idolize them, 
there's problems. Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, these are, like, we're talking about monsters here. Yeah. Like, people that have done the grossest, like, the things that separate us from animals. And even then, I think animals can be more compassionate than some of these people. Yeah, I, you know, you don't see grizzly bears ripping off human heads. Just and then raping them. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, maybe dolphins. I could see dolphins being up there in the criminal war. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I I think that's absolutely... Yuck. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. I'm glad I got to listen to that on this fine night. Aren't you? At least it's not like five in the morning again. Thank God. <laughs> All right. What is your D? So, my D is and isn't a stretch, okay? Okay. Today we will be discussing the fascinating cryptic, the gin. Oh, D G G D J D J I N N. Yes, good call. Yes. I like it. So it actually wasn't supposed to be a stretch when I first started because I'm like gin, that's perfect. And then I got looking into it, and gin. We'll get there. Okay. All right. So gin, also romanized as the de gin, yeah, or anglicized as genies, mm-hmm. are invisible creatures in pre-Islamic Arabian religious systems and later in Islamic mythology and theology. Awesome. I'm like so excited for this episode. <laughs> I love jinns. Like I've lo- uh, I'm definitely one of those people on YouTube that watches different uh, clips and have like seeing stuff that's like reportedly oh that could be a gin it's so fascinating well i think yeah it is and i think it's super interesting to think the more research i do about a lot of these creatures how they all kind of end up at the same origin mm-hmm. it's super cool mm-hmm. totally believe in gins i think 100 percent. but then again i believe in a lot of Yes. Well, that's why we're here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, in common folklore, jinn are capable of assuming human or animal form and are said to dwell in all conceivable inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. Stones, trees, ruins, and underneath the earth, in the air, and in fire. Mm-hmm. They possess the bodily needs of human beings and can even be killed, but they are free from all physical restraints. Jin delight in punishing humans for any harm done to them, intentionally or unintentionally, and are said to be responsible for many diseases and accidents. Ugh, that's the dream. Right? However, those human beings, knowing the proper magical procedure, can exploit the jinn to their advantage. Oh, typical. Right? Humans just wreck everything. They do. Can you imagine just living your life as a petty betty i would be so happy about that you're free from mortal constraints yeah like you mean my back doesn't have to hurt i can just turn into fire and fuck shit up yeah yeah that's the dream that'd be fucking great (laughs) so islamic theology absorbed and modified the jinn some became beautiful and good-natured according to the muslim faith humans are created from clay and water and the essence of angels is light. Jinn were created on the day of creation from the smokeless fire. Or the essential fire. They are invisible to most people except under certain circumstances. However, dogs and donkeys are able to see them. 
Go donkeys. Yeah. They were on the earth well before human beings, but it is unknown how long. By some accounts, they were created 2,000 years before Adam and Eve and are equal to angels in stature. Mm-hmm. Their ruler, Iblis, also called Shaitan, refused to worship Adam and so was cast out of heaven along with his followers. Iblis became the equivalent of the devil and the followers all became demons. Iblis's throne is in the sea. Okay. They all share very, like, all cryptics and, like, all of these biblical... All the theologies. Yeah. Yeah, theologies have a very common storyline. Like, Joey and I were talking about this, like, just the other day. (laughs) (laughs) They all share. Mm -hmm. So, as do humans, jinn have free will and are able to understand good and evil. They can either... They can be either believers, Muslim, or unbelievers, kafir, depending on whether they accept God's guidance, since jinn are neither innately evil nor innately good. Islam acknowledged spirits from other religions and was able to adapt them during its expansion. Okay. Jinn are not a strictly Islamic concept. They may represent several several pagan beliefs integrated into Islam. Mm Mm-hmm. To assert a strict monotheism and the Islamic concept of Tawhid, Islam denies all affinities between the jinn and the god. Okay. Thus placing the jinn parallel to humans. Nice. Also subject to to God's judgment and afterlife. The Quran states that the purpose of their creation is the same as that of humans. Okay. Which is to worship God. Well, free will and all, baby. Yeah. They are responsible for their actions and will be judged at the last judgment. It is said that hell will be filled with jinn and humans together. <laughs> Could you imagine the, like, the humans and the jinn that, like, have pissed each other off throughout the years both in <laughs> hell? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> a really bad episode of Supernatural. <laughs> right? <laughs> So, conflicting stories about the jinn around similar to conflicting stories about angels and demons. Belief in jinn was common in pre-Islamic Arabia, where they were thought to inspire poets and soothslayers. I really hope a soothslayer is, like, a very handsome, well-spoken male to women. That makes women swoon. I don't think so. I want to say that... I didn't Google it. I've got an idea of what it is. I want to say it's like kind of like a medicine woman, but different. Like a medicine person. Like a spiritual person. Like a soothslayer. Sooth? Like S-O-O-T-H? A person supposed to be able to foresee the future. Oh. Although I like your definition as well. Because, I mean, a lot of men do say nice things about the future. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. The Quran now condemns the pre-Islamic Arabian practice of worshipping the jinn or seeking protection from them. Oh, interesting. So, like, you can't worship jinn. Well, I mean, you shouldn't worship them anyways. No. I mean, they're basically humans, but with fire and invisibility. Yes and no, because... 
don't know. I'm a. I would like to think that maybe they were gods at one point, like, and maybe because of all of the believer of more, so the god umbrella, maybe with all of the new. What am I trying to say here? Maybe they've been punted down a few pegs. Maybe. Maybe. But, like, I mean, they're still invisible and fire and animals and all that fun stuff. So they're definitely, like, between, you know, us and what else (laughs) is out there in the spiritual world. Right. So according to some accounts, there are three types of jinns. Okay. Those who are able to fly... These jinns can be heavy or light, tall or thin, and are shapeshifters with very flexible bodies. Okay. Number two, those who reside in a given area and cannot travel outside of that area, they may live in abandoned houses. Could you imagine being the one that's stuck somewhere when there's flying jinn out there? Yeah, I know. I'd be a petty betty too. I would be. And lastly, those who manifest as snakes, scorpions, creeping animals, and dogs. Especially black dogs who are devils or iblis. Okay. And cats. And cats. Black cats or any cats? Any. Okay. A cat should not be chased away early in the morning or late at night, lest it be a shape-shifted shape-shifted djinn who will take revenge. Ooh. You know what? I don't know anybody that wouldn't go like pss, 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 to a cat. You know, what? it depends on the cat. So I'm feeding my mom's cats this week. And the moment I walked through her front door, her one cat just like started growling at me and hissing at me. And I, I was not like, pss, 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 pss. I was like, get in, feed these fucking cats and go. <laughs> don't get bit. Yeah. Her cat is a massive asshole. He is massive. Yes. <laughs> So, Muhammad warned the people to cover their utensils, close their doors, and keep their children close to them at night, as the jinn spread out at night and take things. He also warned people to put out their lights as jinn could drag away the wicks and start a fire. However, they will not open a locked door, untie a knot, or uncover a vessel. If people find a snake in their house, they should call out to it for three days before killing it. If the snake is a shape-shifted djinn, it will be. Interesting. I'm sorry, I have to keep a snake in my house for three days? I'm not opposed. Not opposed. I am opposed. I'm not opposed. But we also live somewhere like this, where our snakes are, like, little, and they're not really venomous, and they're kind of cute. Um, if you live in southern Alberta, they have rattlesnakes. I mean... And those fuckers are huge. Like, they're big, and they're definitely not as fun, but, like, where I live, I've seen <laughs> I've seen a garter snake. I've seen two garter snakes in my whole time living in Edmonton, so. Really? In the River Valley, yeah. Oh, every spring they used to be, like, the running of the snakes. Oh, I've never seen them. Through the bushes. It, it was nasty. I'll be there. Try to catch me. Don't. <laughs> it makes your hands smell bad. Of course it does. I don't care. I'll wash them. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So the jinn can be converted. As Surah 72 of the Quran indicates, it has been revealed to me that a company of the jinn gave ear. 
Then they said, we have indeed heard a Quran wonderful. Guiding to rectitude. Muhammad converted jinn by reciting the Quran to them. However, all jinn are unreliable and deceitful, even if converted. Okay. The jinn will guard graves if commanded to do so by witchcraft. In Egypt, it is bad luck to open a pharaoh's tomb, for the guarding jinn will harm anyone who violates the sacred space. Mmm. I think my favorite Egypt fact is there used to be a lot more mummies, but then all of the British people ate them. What? Yeah. They, like, sell mummy powder and, like, eat it. They, like, put it in stuff as a medicine. So, like, this definitely can't be good luck. Ew. But that's my fun fact. That's, like, cannibalism. (laughs) It's not like it. It is. It is. You know, I could have lived my entire life without knowing that. Thank That's you. That's my whole shtick. That's what I, I do. <laughs> the lifespan of jinn is much longer than that of human, but they do die. Okay. They are both male and female and have children. They eat meat, bones, and dung of animals. Ooh. Not, not a fan. I feel like you could, you need a palate cleanser in there. <laughs> No. They play, sleep, and have animals as pets. Well, I mean, yeah, because you get your food that way, too. I guess. Meat, bones, and dung. Like, bam. That's that's a three-course meal. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Descriptions of their appearances vary. They may have the legs of a goat, a black tail, or a hairy body. They may be exceptionally tall and have their eyes set vertically in their heads. Ooh. That's freaky. Yeah. Although they can live anywhere on the planet, they prefer deserts, ruins, and places of impurity like graveyards, garbage dumps, bathrooms, camel pasture, and hashish dens. Mmm. I'm sorry, how is a camel pasture impurity? I mean, there's a lot of dung in a camel pasture. I guess. Uh, They also can live in the houses where people live. They love to sit in places between the shade and the sunlight and move around when the dark first falls. They also like marketplaces, and Muslims are warned not to be the first to enter or the last to leave any market. Ooh, I bet. Yeah. In Islam, it is believed that humans are unable to get in touch with the deceased, learn about the future or what happens after death, or to be healed, as these phenomena are in God's realm. Mm Mm-hmm. Jinn have limited powers in these areas. Jinn can appear to humans as the spirits of the dead and communicate with the living through visions and voices. Those who learn the medicinal qualities of plants through the plants, talking to them are actually speaking with devils. It was the jinn who taught human sorcery. Oh. Mm-hmm. No ulterior motives there. None. Jinn will eat human food stealing its energy unless people say the name Allah prior to eating marriage between humans and jinns as do fairies jinn fall in love with humans and marry them what yeah there's no direct evidence of it and no children have qualities of both jinn and human a clan in the united arab emirates 
claims to descend from a female jinn. There is controversy over whether it is lawful to marry jinn, but most Islamic jurists believe it is unlawful. There also seems to be controversy as to whether a mixed marriage will be able to produce children. If the mother is human, the child will be visible and look like a human. If the mother is jinn, the child would be invisible. Okay. Yeah. I guess you'd really have to get into, like, the genetics of all of that. Like, what if those, like, children, like, so let's say a visible jinn jin had, like, a child with another jinn. You know what I mean? Like, you could get in and see which traits are dominant and stuff. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I'd, I'd be into that. It would be super cool. <clears throat> I feel like it would be, like, the blue-eye, brown-eye thing. Exactly! That's yeah. exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. <laughs> so, jinns do interview... Uh, Jinns do interfere in human relationships. If they fall in love with a human, they will try to disrupt marriages and other relationships. Oh, fucking potster and homewreckers. Right? Ooh, I don't like them as much now. So, you can also be possessed by a jinn. Oh, shit. That's unfortunate for the homewrecking. Right? So... Ordinary human acts can kill or hurt jinn without people being aware of doing so. When that happens, jinn possesses the offending people in order to take revenge. Mm. Others who are vulnerable to possession are those who live alone, for jinn are opposed to community. Oh, no. As do the daimons. Pairs of jinn stay with each person one whispers good the other whispers evil the moods of humans can be affected by the jinn ranging from happiness to sadness for no reason although they are able to affect people's minds and bodies they have no power over the soul or heart okay when possessed the person appears to be insane and exhibits signs of anger anxiety and depression A woman's voice will sound like a man's. A man's voice will sound like a woman's. Physical symptoms include nausea after eating, headaches, frequent desire to fight, heavy shoulders, a constant feeling of dissatisfaction, and a desire to commit suicide. Oh. Asking the jinn to leave may not be enough to induce him or her to go, and someone who is trained may may be needed to perform an exorcism to expel the jinn from the body. Mm-hmm. Oh. Individual jinn appear on charms and talismans. They are called upon for protection or medical aid, often under the leadership of a king. Many people who believe in jinn wear amulets to protect themselves against the assault of jinn. Sent out by sorcerers and witches. A common belief holds that jinn could not hurt someone who wears something with the name of God, Allah, written upon it. While some Muslim, uh, well, some Muslim scholars in the past had ambivalent attitudes towards sorcery, believing that good jinn do not require one to commit sin, most contemporary Muslim scholars associate dealing with jinn with idolatry, which is the worship of cult oh idolatry is the worship of a cult image or idol as though it were a god okay 
Jin, especially through their association with things unseen, have always been a favorite figure in North Africa, Egypt, Syria, Persia, and Turkey folklore, mm-hmm. and are at the center of an immense popular literature. Mm-hmm. All right, so you ready for some encounters? Yes. So this one. So these are, most of these are said from the writer's perspective. Yeah. All right. So the first one is called The Fight. One time my mother-in-law was sitting in her bed. She looked over and saw a woman sitting in the chair next to her bed with long pointy fingers and a face with very sharp angles. She was so frustrated and annoyed with the gins. They see a lot in their house and are no longer afraid, just really annoyed by them. (laughs) That she reached out, grabbed the gin by the wrist. She yelled, get out. I'm tired of you. Get out. It started to try to pull its wrist away and eventually tried to bite her hand because she wouldn't let go. She pulled her hand away before it bit her and the gin vanished. Can you imagine the audacity? Like, I'm sorry, but like, okay, pointy woman, you sit over there, I'll do my thing. Like, if you're just sitting there, I'm not going to be going over there grabbing anybody's wrist. I wonder if you would feel the same if it was like night after night. I mean, as long as they're just sitting there and not talking to me or like just doing their thing, like, eh, you're not (laughs) bugging me. I mean, if you're bugging me, okay, fair. I get it. But, like, just sit in there. You want to watch me? Oh, good God. (laughs) (laughs) So the next one we have, um, the writer called The Gin in the Locket. At my boarding school, we had a few cases of bullying. In one instance, a bully broke a chain on a student's neck. As soon as that happened, the girl started to speak in a male voice while her body contorted in strange positions. Whoa. It said it was a djinn and had traveled from a faraway place. Meanwhile, the bully's tongue swelled and almost prevented her from breathing. Long story short, teachers were called into the room. Apparently, her parents knew and had gotten the chain for their daughter from a shaman to hold the djinn in. What? Oh my god. I mean, what goes around comes around. Uh, Yeah. Like, you know, if your kid's getting bullied and they don't want you to step in, I would do it. (laughs) Next one is called Communicating with Children. Ooh, not a fan. (laughs) I know. This happened when my grandfather was Egypt's ambassador to Spain and was living in Spain. I was two years old at the time. My mother said she would see me standing by the staircase, constantly talking to someone. And when she would put me to bed, I would stare out the door and say, tick-tack, tick-tack. No. Later on, my grandmother mentioned to my mom that she thinks I might be seeing spirits in the house. And when we were talking about it, my grandfather said that the TV in his room would turn off and on sporadically and sometimes he could see shadows running from across the balcony through the slits in the blinds. No, I'm not a fan. No. See, that, no. That's not welcome in my home. No. Are you willing to piss off a gin to say that? No, of course not. (laughs) 
My grandmother said that it's known little children and animals can see spirits. So when they saw me talking to someone, they assumed there were spirits in the house and I was the only one who could communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Next one is called Hooves. Ooh. This is an old Persian story. One day, a lady goes to the public bathhouse. She pays the attendant and goes inside. Once inside, she notices someone in the room with her. She looks down at their feet, but instead of feet, the person has hooves. The lady freaks out and runs outside as fast as she can. She rushes to the attendant and tells her that she saw someone with hooves instead of feet. The attendant looked at her, lifts up her skirt, and asks, like this? Wild. (laughs) Next one we call the busybody. Oh, no. (laughs) I grew up in an Arab household with many Arab family friends, so I've heard many scary gin stories. A family friend of mine claimed that she went to bed one night and her whole house was a mess. By the time she woke up, her whole house was clean for some reason. That freaked me out when I was little. Every night I made sure that my room was clean so that gins wouldn't clean it for me. Nowadays, being a wife and a full-time college student, I could only pray that a gin would clean my house for me. That was my thought. Why would you be afraid? Right? Like, that's, that is the dream. Sorry, that is it. You're telling me that I just need to be messy and somebody will clean my house? Ugh. That'd be lovely. I mean, the amount of dog hair that is in my life. (laughs) Right? So, the next one we call the nightly whispers. Ooh, nope. A few years ago, when I was on my third trimester of pregnancy, I would only be able to fall asleep when dawn came. Just as I was about to fall asleep one night, I felt pressure on the end of the bed, near my feet, as if someone, very heavy, sat on the bed. Uh Uh-uh. Which was weird because it didn't even hear anyone come into the room. No creaking door, no footsteps. Just then, an eerie voice spoke straight into my mind. The language was unintelligible and distorted. I knew it wasn't human. But, to my surprise, I understood what it was trying to say. My brain processed it easily as if I had learned the language somewhere in the past. It had asked me to pray my morning prayer. I was too sleepy and too scared to actually open my eyes. What if its face was suddenly right in front of my nose? Yeah, that's a real fear. Yeah. So I responded in my head, communicating without actually opening my mouth to say a word. Later, please. I am so tired I didn't get to sleep. After I said so, the weight on the end of the bed lifted. The air, which was previously heavy with presence, became light and clear. I opened my eyes a little and saw the earliest morning light gleaming through the window. My door stood still, no one came in or out, and I fell back asleep. Wow. (sighs) The landlord. In Saudi, my aunt lived in a house that was always being visited by a peculiar djinn who used to annoy her family. Once she was laying in bed at night with her husband, she felt that something was off, and when she left the room, she found her husband watching TV on the couch. When they went back to the bedroom to confront the djinn, it just laughed at them and disappeared. <laughs> at least it had the decency to disappear. Right? <laughs> Next, we have the territorial djinn. Oh, no. 
My great uncle went to visit his cousins in India. His cousins told him that since it was summertime, they would all sleep in the courtyard together. However, they told him he wasn't allowed to place his bedding in a peculiar corner, or in a particular corner. Apparently, a jinn slept there, and strange things happened if anyone disturbs that corner. My great uncle said it was nonsense and decided to sleep there anyway. Classic. One night, he woke up on the other side of the courtyard. He laughed at first and thought it was his cousins who were pranking him and decided to sleep there again. The following night, the same thing happened, so he left a note next to his pillow saying, Stop pranking me. I know there is no gin. That night, he said he was pushed off his bed and his bedding was thrown to the other side of the room. A note was thrown into his lap which said, I sleep here. The scary part is it wasn't that dark and there was no one there. Ooh. Okay. Next, we have the family farm. When I was little in Sudan, my family had a farm and it was a special place to me. But this farm, wonderful as it was, was terrifying at night. That might have something to do with the fact that the farm is between the Nile and a graveyard. And one day, as we were pulling up to the farm, I saw a fire that was the size of a person. That is to say, a fire that was exactly the size of a human being from far away in the farmhouse. Ooh. Casually, I watched this fire take a few steps to the left while nothing else caught on fire and then vanish. Oh my god, yes. You might say that I had an overreactive imagination as a 10-year-old. I would say that you are incorrect because I remember it incredibly vividly. I told my mom, I told my dad, and one of them casually mentioned that you that I might have seen a gin. Yeah. 100% nothing else is catching on fire. Right? Oh, that's cool. Next, we have Willow Wilson. Okay. When I started writing about gins, I would have these very interesting, vivid, imaginary encounters with gins. I was about to move to Egypt, and I had this small room in which I had a large desk, too large for the room, and a bed. And in order to get into bed, I had to push the desk chair all the way under the desk because there wasn't enough room for me to get in and out otherwise. So one night I had gone to sleep, and I sort of half woke because I thought I had heard somebody clearing their throat or moving something. And there... In the desk chair staring at me was a guy, this man, with long scraggly hair and these extremely intense eyes, and he was just looking, looking. And I sat straight up in bed and screamed, as one might. (laughs) Naturally, you know how this story ends. There was nothing there, of course. The interesting thing and the reason why it stuck with me in a way that most dreams I had as a kid did not was because that chair that I had to push all the way under the desk in order to get into bed had been pulled out and was facing the bed. That's creepy. Yeah. Last story of the day is called The Furniture. There's this house in Lahore that belongs to my extended family, all four brothers that live there with their wives and families. All four of them died under mysterious circumstances, and they all died very young. So the house is just inhabited by four widows and their kids, 
who are my cousins who I hung out with growing up. It seems like time and space just didn't work the same way in this house as it does in the outside world. Weird. There was an upstairs section to the house and my aunt was always telling us not to go up there. But we were kids and we just wanted to like having another play area. So we went up there and the furniture was all facing the wrong direction. Not set up properly and haphazardly placed. So we rearranged the furniture and set it up so it could be like a lounge. But the next day we went up there and the furniture was set up in the exact same way as it before we had moved it. We asked everyone else in the house if they had gone up there, if they had moved the furniture, and no one had done it. So, I mean, in conclusion, the only thing you can really say is that the house had some gins living in there. Mm-hmm. So, I got all of this from BuzzFeedNews.com, Wikipedia, Britannica, Occult World, and Westling.org. Nice. And um, that is gins. That was awesome. Thank Ooh. you. <laughs> They're fascinating. They are. They really are. Okay, that wraps us up for D. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely. Tune in next Tuesday as we cover E for season two. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast. Or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at L-E-X-X-A underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.